Welcome to the Fertility Podcast. It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas everywhere you go. Festive greetings and welcome to episode nine of the Fertility Podcast. It's December 2014, depending on when you're listening to this. If it's your first time listening to the Fertility Podcast, welcome. The aim of this podcast is to talk about issues that affect people trying to conceive, whether it's stories from people going through fertility treatment or it's interviews with fertility experts. This is a place where hopefully some of your questions are answered. If you have been listening to the Fertility Podcast and you've not yet subscribed, please do so. You can either do it through iTunes or through Stitcher. The links are on the Fertility Podcast website. Also, if you're happy to leave a review, that would be really great, as um, it's always good to know what you think and tell your friends if there's people you think would benefit from this. Now, I'm not a doctor by any means. I'm someone who is now seven and a half months pregnant, uh, having gone through IVF. And it's funny thinking back to this time last year because my husband and I found out just before Christmas last year, that we were going to have to have fertility treatments. And it was a shock. We we didn't think that that's what it was going to come to. We thought that um, the tests would just show that there was this or that going on. So we were then in front of our family through the Christmas period. We were both pretty thrown by what was going on. And I blogged about this recently just to say, if you found yourself in a similar situation, if you've just found out that the tests you've had show you do need fertility treatment, spend this time, the pair of you, just talking it through. Just get it used to what's going to happen in your head. And it's a positive. It's a positive that there is a something else for you to focus on in the new year. You can read the blog on thefertilitypodcast.com because I'm really excited to introduce in just a moment fertility expert Emma Cannon whose books I really enjoyed reading whilst trying to conceive before even starting having any tests. So without further ado let me introduce Emma Cannon. Right it's episode nine of the Fertility Podcast and I'm really quite chuffed to welcome Emma Cannon to the Fertility Podcast, a lady whose books I read whilst trying to conceive and whose recipes fed both my husband and me during different parts of of my cycle which I will talk more to you Emma about. Emma first of all welcome thank you for being here. Thanks for having me it's a pleasure. You've got a new book out, which we'll talk about a little bit later on, because I want to go back to earlier books and the emphasis that you put on diet when you're trying to conceive. Because I found myself buying certain foods from the supermarket to have at certain times of my cycle whilst trying to conceive. This was before I knew that we necessarily had a problem. And that in itself, I felt quite a methodical and enjoyable thing to do. How much emphasis do you think couples should put on their diet when they're trying to conceive? It's different for everyone, but as a general rule, I think it's sort of 20-30% of the story. I think diet, good diet and good digestion are sort of the foundations for good fertility and good health, really. So um, I think, of course, some people need to overhaul their whole diet, whereas some people just need to you know, give about 20% of the focus onto it, 25%. It's sort of a quarter of the story, I would say. Of course, there are foods that, you know, you should and shouldn't eat, and and we all know about those, and and that's not particularly rocket science. But it's more about sort of saying, look, these foods you can eat lots of and eat these at a particular time, and using food more like, you know, medicine, which is how I use it in my house. I mean, food is our first form of medicine. So when myself or my children are coming down with something, I always start by adapting the diet 
to sort of help them through whatever they're going through. So it's, for me, it's a starting point, but that doesn't mean to say that you can't have any enjoyment out of food. It's really not about that, actually. I just saw one of your recent blog posts about fermented food, which I think for, for men, especially the likes of pickles um, in the mix, are always going to appeal. I mean, you really go into detail with regards to tea being better than coffee, fermented foods. Can those types of foods really make a difference or is it it's all just part of this big mix? I think it's, it's about appropriateness. So whenever I have somebody sitting in front of me, and that's what I really try to do with the book, is I try to give a level of self-diagnosis so that you can choose foods which are helpful for you. So any one person would be slightly different in the advice. I mean, of course, everyone I advise to eat, you know, lots of green vegetables, lots of antioxidant-rich foods, you know, good proteins and avoid low fat. But then apart from the sort of very basic rules that you can probably read in every single book written about fertility, what I then try and do is I try with, with the books to try and pinpoint it towards the individual, which is what I do in clinic. So for instance, if somebody is what I would diagnose as blood deficient, so a little bit lacking in blood, so they might have a very light menstrual bleed, or they might during an IVF cycle have a very thin endometrium lining, then what I'm doing is I'm focused, trying to get them to focus the food on foods that will nourish the blood. So that's, um, you know, the chicken broth, the bone broth, things like that, black foods, um, high protein foods, and so on. For somebody else, their problem may be more damp. So people with polycystic ovaries who don't ovulate regularly, they need to have foods that drain dampness so that the body isn't so waterlogged. So foods like barley and avoiding cheese and avoiding sugar is really important for them. So it's it's very individual, my approach, and I really try and explain that in the book. Because what's interesting in in both your books, there's the baby making Bible and total fertility in in particular, is the detail that you give with regards to the individual, as you've just said, and I quite enjoyed working out the different kind of aspects of my my being and then applying that to the different foods, because I think when you are getting so obsessed on trying to fall pregnant, this is quite a good distraction. Is that is that kind of part of the process to give you this other area to reduce stress, which I know you focus a lot on, and we'll talk more about your use of acupuncture as another stress relief, but focusing on these lovely dishes that you can make to almost distract you to, from what's going on. Do you think do you think that's a kind of subconscious thing that's going on? Yeah, I mean, I think I think that there is that, but I think that idea of feeling like we're nourishing ourselves is really, really important. So yes, a distraction, if you like, but also just a positive thing that we can do for ourselves. You know, it's it's. I have this expression that in order to nourish another, first we have to nourish ourselves. And I think a lot of us as women are very, very good at nourishing other people and looking after other people. And I'm I'm not particularly good at, you know, nourishing ourselves. And I mean that on lots of levels, not just nutrition. So, yes, you can have a very nourishing meal, but you can actually be somebody who, you know, doesn't give yourself any time, for instance, always on the go, always doing things for other people. So I think this idea of nourishing ourselves is really, really fundamental for women. And also, um, I've got this thing, my favourite thing at the moment, is, you know, the ability to receive, you know. How able are we to receive? And I think that's very interesting when you look, think about that in terms of fertility, about how receptive we are. But also, you know, when somebody is really kind to us and, you know, and gifts us or does something kind for us, our ability to, or gives us a compliment even, our ability to receive that actually into our psyche. And I think these are really, really important things on the fertility journey. They may not seem like they're immediately linked, but 
I actually see how people's self-esteem can get really eroded away and their ability to nourish themselves. So it's those sorts of themes that I'm very, very interested in. Well, we've talked previously on, on episodes with the Fertility Podcast about the importance of, of well-being and stress and support. And, and you're a prime example of someone who works with both Western and Eastern methods. Talk to me a bit more about for example, your use of acupuncture and the more holistic approaches to your clients that you're working with? Well, acupuncture was my original training and I always fall back to it. And I think acupuncture is really, really helpful. I think it's helpful in, in several ways. I think that the question, the way that we diagnose in Chinese medicine is really, really interesting and it values the, um, the individual. So I think that even from the diagnostic stage and the questioning stage and feeling the pulse and looking at the tongue, that the patient feels really, really heard and understood. And because you're trying to weave together this web of information, sometimes you ask the patient really pertinent questions that that they themselves feel are related to one another, but maybe no one else has asked them. And you put value on that. And we also put value on the patient's observations of their own health, which sometimes I feel in Western medicine, this is really overlooked. So you might go and say, I really feel that these things are connected and you'll be told, no, 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 they're not connected at all or, or, or whatever or, you know, made to feel a bit stupid about it sometimes. Um, and, and I think that the, because of the way that we ask questions and because we link things together sometimes in a different way, people feel very heard. So that's the first thing. Um, and, and that's not that that doesn't exist in medicine. Of course, that's, that exists in medicine, but in, in a slightly different way and, and maybe not as much as it used to exist in medicine. So that is, if you like, the therapeutic interaction, which is very important. I think that acupuncture then works in a number of ways. It um, affects the hypothalamus, which is the part of the brain that controls the hormones. So it tends to have a very regulating effect on the body. Um, it's in a way you're applying controlled trauma to the body which I think is absolutely fascinating. So we see this in other forms of medicine. Um, in the IVF now, they do they starting doing something called the endometrial scratch, which is an old technique which they brought back, and it's going in and sort of traumatizing the endometrial lining to elicit a change in the immune system. And in some ways, acupuncture is very similar to that, that by applying controlled injury to the body, that you're eliciting a change. So. Uh, I think that's very interesting. Also, the way that we used they used to, to needle in China, sometimes I needle quite strong, but I think it's really important because you're actually trying to kind of kickstart the body to, to work better. My observation of acupuncture is it gets the system to work better. So I always say it depends how deviated from normal functioning you are as to how successful it would be. But the great thing about acupuncture is it works really well in tangent with Western medicine. And I think the absolute key is knowing how to appropriately use it and also knowing where you're best placed to put your treatment. So, for instance, if someone's going through IVF, you know, the IVF clinics are doing all the big stuff. I'm just like the mechanic in the background that's making the car run a little bit better. So gently improving the blood flow, um, helping to calm the mind, helping to release endorphins and dopamine so the person feels safe, secure, relaxed. All of those things. 
So I, I think it's really about working with a practitioner that understands what their role is in the dynamic. It's really important. Because I, I went and saw a, an acupuncturist who specialised in fertility. And I think that's quite well a significant kind of part of it. Because obviously, if people have had experience of acupuncture in the past and they're now looking at it with regards to their fertility. Do you think it's fair to say that you should seek out an acupuncturist who is a fertility specialist? Yeah, I think so. I mean, we don't really have specialisms in our body. It's more that, you know, you develop in a certain area. So I would hope that people who are advertising themselves as such have done additional training. I mean, for myself, you know, I I went and did, you know, studies with the Royal College of Ops and Gynes. They do a course on management of infertile couples. You know, I really immersed myself in the whole fertility world. So, yes, I think you have to be careful because I think people call themselves a specialist. I don't know how sometimes what that's based on. But I would look for additional training and certainly a knowledge. And I think you would get that, you know, ask your friends who they've been to, ask a clinic, you know, get a recommendation. Um, I think websites sometimes can be misleading. Now, you blogged recently about some tips for relief from Christmas stress, and we're entering this festive period. If people are either about to start their fertility journey, whether it's treatment or they've just found out that maybe they're going to be having to start in the new year, and obviously, if you've if you're trying to conceive and this is a period where you're not going to be drinking and that in itself can be a stress, just give me a couple of the tips that you would say to help relieve that stress that you might just be nervous about, even going to the Christmas party and, and not drinking, you know, that kind of thing, if you're going through IVF, for example. Yeah, I think, you know, I think this is a really big one. And I think that, you know, when, you, when, you're, when you're going through IVF, you quite often takes over quite a lot of your life. So I think it's about getting the balance, actually. And I think, you know, actually going out and having a good time and relaxing can be really, really helpful. And yes, avoiding alcohol. But actually, you know what, if, you, if you're if you going to sit down and have a meal and you have a glass of wine with the meal, this really isn't a big, this really isn't a problem. You know, I, I sometimes think it's more important to relax. And actually the evidence around alcohol is really on long-term use of alcohol and abuse of alcohol. So this is very different. And, and I know that people want to sort of try and get healthy and you know my book and lots of people advocate no alcohol but I think that actually every now and then to have a meal have a glass of wine is is actually more beneficial than saying no to everything and I think it can be quite divisive as well in a couple you know if one person carries on drinking the other person is doing all the work and or vice versa you know it can be quite difficult but I think rest is really important so I think go go out have a dance you know, maybe even have one drink if you're if you're eating. Never drink on an empty stomach. That is a big rule. And I think, you know, try and go to bed early. So, you know, actually going to bed before 12 o'clock is a bit of a rule of mine in the winter because I think we all need the extra sleep. And don't underestimate the, the power of rest because... I, my and I'm you know, I'm not going through IVF and I really have to manage myself at this time of year because I think everybody's on a bit of a low ebb energy energy wise. You know, it's very stressful time of year and I think it can be very difficult if you're going into, you know, Christmas is a time where you think, great, another year when I'm not pregnant. And I think it can be really, really difficult. So be really kind to yourself. Maybe treat yourself to a massage or something like that that can really help. And um, yeah, just don't be too hard on yourself. 
you make that point a lot, I think, in your books about being kind to yourself. And I think it is often overlooked. Um, just going back to the point you made about who's doing what in the relationship with regards to the men that you, you come across. I mean, we, we focus quite heavily on episode seven of the Fertility Podcast on male fertility issues. Um, I'm just interested to see how engaged you find men with regards to the things that you're discussing with them, with their lifestyle. <laughs> and they usually answer fine to every question I ask. Oh, right. OK. <laughs> and then leave the really best bit till last. <laughs> I don't know. You know, once you engage men, and I hate to speak generally about male and female, but it does tend to be the women that drive the fertility story. Sometimes you have men that are very much involved and sometimes you even have men that are overly involved. So there's all sorts of men out there. I find that actually when they make a choice to come themselves and when they want to be there themselves, and that's really, really important. The last thing I want to see is a guy that's been dragged into my clinic and is there reluctantly. It's not good for him and it's not good for me. But when men want to be on board and they want to be part of the process, I actually feel it can be really beneficial for them because a lot of the time it's a male, male issue um, and I think that they feel that in the Western medicine model they're often overlooked um, and even if the problem is with them it's still the woman doing a lot of the, the work so in an, you know, in an IVF cycle for male factor you know it's still the woman doing the injecting and the, and the, the major major part of the work there and so I think actually from my side if you involve them in diet and and acupuncture and stress relief actually they too tend to come on board I think there is a general denial out there about male fertility and I think and I don't know whether this has come across in in your um, previous podcast but actually if you think about the way that, that fertility is set up it's usually gynecologists that are the ones you know dishing out the advice and gynecologists are trained to treat women (laughs) so there's a fatal flaw there which is biased towards the woman and against the man so and also western medicine is quite interesting that until they have a solution for something they tend to deny that the problem even exists so you know 20 years ago infertility was a purely female problem in the eyes of most you know western medicine practitioners because they didn't actually have a solution for male factor fertility and then suddenly you know there they are they discover ICSI and there's you know then that immediately puts a bit of emphasis back on the men so I think that we all of us who work in this field really need to keep campaigning to get men on board and raise awareness I think we need to generally engage in fertility younger in life you know that's my big thing is not just men but you know younger people and I've got two daughters and they're sick to death of me telling them to preserve their fertility but but you know it's a good message and our generation were told, for goodness sake, you know, God, please don't get pregnant. Please don't let me be pregnant. Exactly. And, um, you know, for years and years and years. And then suddenly expect to, you know, switch a flick. And flip, switch a flick. I don't know, you know what I'm saying. And, you know, for our fertility to be there waiting for us. So it's not really quite that easy. One of the points that Dr. Alan Pacey said in our male fertility episode, which was part two of episode seven, we talked about men having a kind of fertility MOT, like a woman has a smear or the different kind of checks that women have and whether or not that was a good idea. And he raised the point that, say, a 20-something guy has has a check and there is something wrong, then where does that put him? Does that put him seeking out that person to try and recreate or does he just wait till he meets the right person but then he's got this knowledge? So 
there was both sides of the argument with something like that. Yeah, not so much that, but well, I'll give you an example. For instance, a friend of mine's son had an accident the other day and really, really damaged his test, one of his testicles. In fact, had to have a serious operation. And even though he was only 17 at the time, I said, just free some sperm. I know that it sounds weird, but free some sperm. Because you do not know what that injury is going to cause 20 years down the line. And, you know, there's going to be some poor woman that goes through, you know, five years of investigation. Hopefully by then it will be better than it has been. But do you know what I mean? So I think there are things that we can do that actually is damage limitation. So it might not necessarily be doing, a, you know, DNA testing and, you know, all of that. But it might just be, you know, if there's injury, if there's fever, if there's undescended testicles, if there's, you know, a number of, you know, cancer, all of these things then to properly counsel, don't just think, oh, they're 17, think they're 17 now, but they may want a baby one day, and just give them the information. And because it's so often, I will be sat in front of a couple in my clinic who I think that their fertility problem could have been prevented if it had been highlighted earlier in their life. Obviously not all cases, but many, you know. Interviews with fertility experts on the Fertility Podcast. You spoke earlier in the summer at Wilderness Festival about fertility issues. And whilst that is obviously a more alternative festival, I'm just keen to see whether you're feeling that the landscape's changing, that people are being more willing now to discuss this kind of thing in the open and that kind of setting is is the future having these conversations like you're saying we need awareness at a younger age and maybe that kind of relaxed festival vibe is a perfect place for these kind of conversations I mean how did you feel about it oh yeah it was great I mean it was really really great to be asked and um but I, I mean, I'm amazed that anyone wants to talk about fertility at a festival, but some did. Um, so, no, it was really good. A load of my friends conceived babies at festivals. I know. I think I might have <laughs> one of my babies at a festival. Um, so, no, no, it, it, it is definitely a good, it's a good way to have a baby. Um, but I, I think generally um, talking in, in that sort of relaxed way about it, I mean, I think that's why I have a natural capacity towards it because I grew up in a family of girls and literally there was always someone having a period or a baby in my house. So, you know, for me, it, it was very, it's a very natural thing, you know, talking about periods, talking about boyfriends, talking about, you know, it, you know, my, my mum always said to me that having children was the biggest achievement of her life. So it was a very positive experience for me to grow up in. And I think, Look, we all want to work, we all want to have careers, but I think that we need to be honest about our biology and our physiology earlier in life. And that's that's my big thing, really, is is just talking about it in a relaxed way, being open about it. And, just you know, fertility doesn't last forever and it's precious and we should preserve it. And, and that doesn't mean that we all have to have our babies, you know, in our 20s. It just means that we need to have a relationship with our bodies and our health a little bit earlier in life. Now, your newest book, Fertility to Family, I love the comment that you say about how food and thought are two of the core pillars that underpin a foundation for health. And we've talked about the food aspect, we've talked about the stress, the mind over matter. Do you think that we are too guilty of just being so focused on everything that's going on with our career that this awareness and this conversation and this engagement in ourselves and in our body is being overlooked I just think we move a million miles an hour I think most of the time I mean we're all guilty of it you know me included 
And I think we, we move too quickly, try and do too much, and we don't sort of savour what's in front of us enough. I have a lot of people that have a very healthy diet, but they have a really bad attitude towards it and a really bad attitude towards eating. And there is a slightly scary part of the whole health movement for me, you know, having been doing it since the 80s, which is a little bit on steroids at the moment. You know, it's like who has the most extreme yoga workout, you know, who has the most overtly healthy healthy diet who you know who has this guru that guru you know I I think that we these things are really important but it's also important that we leave time to live you know so all of my advice is is that yes we do need to make time for healthy eating we do need to make time for yoga and acupuncture and these things but actually really what we need to make time for is ourselves and people that we love and just to take a breath and breathe sometimes I I think a lot of people I see their bodies it's almost like their bodies are stuck in fight or flight their immune systems are so overburdened it's like a little light switch got switched on and it's left on dimmer that's how I see their immune system so they're sort of buzzing away and nothing has a chance to take hold in that I was going to ask you for a final tip, but this kind of just leads me on to the end point, that I, which is a quite a big end point, especially in Total Fertility, um, one of your more recent books as well. There's a lot more advice for couples trying to conceive a second child. And that point you just made about that dimmer switch probably answers why it can take couples longer than expected. I mean... My husband and I have friends who who are now expecting their second child talking to us about how they were surprised that when they conceived the first so quick, the second took so much longer. And do you think that's the reason this dimmer switch and, you know, you're kind of just speeding through life and you need to, even if you've got a child, you know, that there wasn't the need for fertility treatment and what have you the first time around, you still need to re-engage that there are things happening that need to be addressed in order to make it happen again. Yeah, I mean, I think in secondary infertility is on the increase because everybody is quite exhausted, actually. Um, their bodies feel under threat. They don't have enough sex. That's quite big. I, we did a survey, actually, in our clinic, and we looked at couples who try and pinpoint sex or using sticks or other methods to try and pinpoint it. And actually, those couples have half the amount of sex of people that don't so actually we have this idea that we have this enormous amount of control over things but actually when we try to control it I think that actually what we do is we lose the essence of it so actually probably people will be better off just having sex when they feel like like it when they have the energy yes have an awareness of your cycle but to try and pinpoint it to the very day and just boil your sex life down to that you know that's actually going to reduce your chances so the question is huge you know I think it's yeah it's impossible <laughs> it's impossible to know and, and the advice I give to people is always on an individual level but I think there's there's lots of things there um but yes I think we need to try and do a, bit, a little bit less sometimes and also probably let's finish on this I think that sometimes we need to focus on being rather than doing and even a lot of the advice that I can I give people if it ends up making them more doers rather than beers it's probably not good advice so just take everything with a pinch of salt and and really try not to gather too much information because I think that leads to obsession which is a big problem everything in moderation including moderation (laughs) (laughs) Emma thank you so much we're going to put all the details of 
the books and your blog and your Twitter all on the show notes. Um, um, everyone. I mean, don't lose faith most. because honestly, most people are successful. And I think that's the most important thing to bear in mind that most people are successful and try not to, you know, try not to have a joyless life in the process because it can be really tough, but there is joy in there as well. So hold on to that. Emma Cannon, thank you for your time. Lovely to chat to you. Bye. Bye. So I hope you found that interesting. As always, the show notes from this episode are available for you with links to Emma's website, her book titles, some of the highlights of what she was talking about and how you can find her on Twitter. Just go to thefertilitypodcast.com forward slash episode nine. Also, of course, you can comment on what you thought of the episode. You can let me know if you've got a story that you want to tell or a question that you want to ask. Just email info at thefertilitypodcast.com. Santa Claus is coming to town. <laughs>